Hello and welcome to The 100 Podcast. It's Ed and Charlie here with you. Hope you're well. And today we're taking on our pre-draft mailbag. You have been sending in your questions about The 100 Draft and uh, we're going to answer them all. Every single one we've got, we're going to answer. Charlie, lots to get through today. There are. There's lots of questions here. Some are really interesting, actually. Looking forward to getting stuck in and answering some of your queries. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to send in more questions, obviously we won't be able to answer them on this podcast, but at Podcast 100 on Twitter, we'd love to hear them. Love to hear your thoughts, your questions. We'll answer them on future podcasts. But tell you what, let's just let's just get stuck straight in. There's lots to get through. We'll start with William Tench, uh, who asks, should 100 squads be larger? Only 16 players leaves lots of top quality white ball talent undrafted, is lower than most franchise leagues, excluding CPL, and more players would reduce the need for constant replacements. What are your thoughts on this, Charlie? Uh, I have mixed feelings on this one. I completely understand the sentiment. There are a lot of replacements typically in this competition, lots of injuries, lots of going back and forth. That is confusing and frustrating. And I understand, in theory, why you want a bigger squad off the back of that. The issue, I feel, is that there's also a county competition happening concurrently, the Royal London Cup. Mm. And that means that to have bigger squads in the 100, you're decimating an already pretty decimated tournament even further. Uh, I don't think the counties are going to really want that to happen. So I feel like you're already trading quite a fine line there as it is. And I worry that going further and taking more players from that competition is going to mean that relationships are going to get really, really bad. And I don't think it's worth it for the sake of a relatively minor inconvenience. I I think it's probably fine as it is, to be honest with you. Yeah, I agree. And it's two things, really. One, the 100 is the only high-end franchise um, tournament that's happening whilst other domestic cricket is happening in the same country, just the way our summer works. Bit of a nightmare, but... That's just the the nature of the beast. Um, and so I think these these squad sizes work because, you know, the, the 50 over tournament does actually serve a purpose for the 100. The future stars that you're theoretically going to be bringing in are playing in the 50 over competition. Rehan Ahmed, for example, got a little bit of a break in the 50 over competition a couple of years back for Leicestershire. That's where he started playing a little bit more regularly. So, you know, I, I think keeping as high a standard of the 50 over tournament as possible is good for the 100. Um, and I think just draining that of talent doesn't actually bring any benefit when most of these players, let's be honest, are going to be sitting on the bench. And uh, what would be helpful would be to maybe designate some replacement players. I think that's the option maybe you go for where each team has a replacement player and um, that you know they are able to call up, but they stay with their county side unless it's an emergency. To be honest, though, I, I just don't think that expanding things any further is really really worthwhile um i think again you want to have a strong 50 over competition um and you just don't want to be draining all of the counties of their top players because again it just reduces the development of the young stars who are going to be joining the 100 in a year or two yeah i completely agree with that i I think generally having a bit of movement from the 100 squads to the Royal London Cup is a good idea. I think that's been discussed briefly. I think that is something that they plan to do this year to make sure that as few players as possible are sitting on the bench and as many players as possible are playing some kind of cricket. That could only be a positive and I think that's a good move. But uh, off the back of that, I feel like having those 100 squads bigger probably doesn't work. So I think the balance you've got now makes complete sense. 
So move on to a question from Seb, who's got an interesting one on draft dynamics here, and asks, what do you think about having two blast wildcards instead of one this year? And what roles would you be most confident you can leave at the main draft to fill at the wildcard draft? Now, um, to, to give some context here, the 100 draft is basically one pick shorter this year, so you get one less player in that, and basically teams are able to pick two players in the wildcard draft, which happens after the blast, rather than one which I, I think is interesting, allows for some more form players to be brought up. But the question really here is, Charlie, can you leave yourself much work to be done in the wildcard draft? I wouldn't necessarily want to have a need at the wildcard draft because ideally, if you drafted well in the main draft, then you could use a wildcard draft to essentially hoover up whoever the most exciting breakout star is or whoever the most informed player is or whatever you feel like will add most value to your squad at the time but if it's a need maybe not ideal however what i will say is that there are probably a couple of areas a couple of roles that are relatively plentiful in the english game and i think with the nature of this draft with one round less than in previous years what that will mean is that there's going to be a relatively large amount of pretty solid dependable options who are going to be available to you in that wildcard draft. And I think the role that you're going to see the results of that more prominently than others are going to be batters who can hit pace, particularly mm. right-handers, because there are plenty of those in the English game. The county circuit produces an awful lot of right-handed batters who are pretty good at hitting pace. So I feel like there's going to be a very decent amount of solid options in that area that you will be able to get and add some depth to your squad. Now, mm. obviously, there's going to be some flyers. There's going to be some young kids who come out come out the bolts and really look brilliant, right? And you can pick up those high upside players too if you want. But if you want a solid squad option in that kind of area, I feel like you're going to be able to get them without too much trouble in the World Cup draft. I'll tell you what you won't be able to find is Seamus. I think that that's the first thing here. I, I think you're going to be able to find some batters. Um, and I also think, to be honest, you can find yourself a left arm spinner very easily. Um, I, th I think you're going to see two or three, maybe even four guys who are probably 100 level, not go, not get drafted. So I think you can always find yourself a left arm finger spinner if you want to add that to your, you know, add that to your team. So I think that's a possibility. Um, so I think informed batters, young batters, maybe some high intent batters guys you can throw up and down the order yeah Aaron Lilly if he Lilly kind of player if he's really in a hot streak or uh, a player like that you know I think you're always going to be fine some informed batters you can bring into your squad I think the issue really is is that you don't want to be filling a need obviously if you're looking for batting depth and you enter this with batting depth and you say I'm going to bring in a batter that's great they can compete for a role that's fine what you can't be doing is coming in and saying we need this exact kind of player especially if you're the Welsh fire and then into this wildcard draft saying, you know what we really need? We really need a spinner, otherwise we're screwed. Because then what happens if there's a really talented young player who breaks out, you've got the first overall pick, and you're like, well, we really need to take a spinner here. So, you, you know, you want to use the wildcard draft not as a, this guy's going to complete our team. It's a bringing in as much talent as possible. And therefore, you really don't want to be entering it thinking, I need this, we need this. You want to pick up the best talent possible, pick up the best player in the blast, and add them to your roster and see what happens. I, I think that is the real way you want to be going about things. So, yeah, I do think you can find a left-arm spinner. Yeah, I do think you can find a batter, but you really want to be adding depth rather than going after uh, going after someone to fill out your side. 
Yeah, I completely agree with you there. I, I also feel like, and I don't know if this will play out like this, but I want to throw this suggestion out there because it might be a tactic that teams take. I'm I'm curious to wonder if, given the fact that the shortened draft might mean that there are going to be a relatively high amount of solid, dependable, 100-level squad options available at the wildcard draft. I mm. wonder if that will mean that teams will be more tempted to take a flyer on a high upside potential player in the main draft in the yeah. knowledge that they'll be able to pick up someone solid and dependable in the wildcard draft later on. That might be an option that teams take. For example, if there's a Rehan Ahmed type player, right? He went before in last year's draft for a pretty solid amount of money despite having not played any T20 cricket at that time. <laughs> I wonder if I wonder if teams are going to look at that and say, well, I'm going to try and lock in someone who I think could be the next Rehan Ahmed. And if it doesn't work out, it's okay because I can get a solid, similar play in that role at wildcard draft anyway. Mm, yeah. And, and remember, and this is important to remember, I think, is that obviously Rayhan went to the Southern Brave. There were a lot of other teams who wanted him and were very disappointed when he went before they had the opportunity to draft him. Um, you know, there, there was a lot of, there, there was a big market. I think he went at 50K in the end. I mean, there were plenty of teams lining him up at the 40, 30K range. Now, I don't know if there's a Ray Hanarman in, in, in this draft per se, but I think that's a really interesting point. There are some players who who are pretty solid T20s that we've, 2020 players that we project to maybe go undrafted. Um, and Matt Critchley, for example, who, you know, I, I think he's in contention to be drafted for sure, but he's not in this one. You know, the, 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 I think there is probably going to be some decent players who, who drop out so i think that's an interesting point especially if you're a say birmingham phoenix who entered you know into this draft with you know a couple of things they want to address but could have the possibility of bringing in a high upside young player maybe in that 50k or that 40k slot obviously with the with the potential that at some point they're going to have to pay some of the players who slide slightly further down their draft grid so i think that's interesting and, and if you do if teams do think there's going to be a number of players available in that wildcard draft, and obviously then you can have young players who come out of nowhere and you think the market's going to be good. I think that's a really interesting point and, and we'll see, see where that goes really. Um, I think that, that's an interesting point. I'm excited to see what kind of, uh, what kind of players, maybe a surprise player that, that teams pick up. And I think we'll get on to surprise players later on, but first let's have a uh, question from Susa Gwa, uh, who asks what will be possible signings for Birmingham Phoenix in this year's draft? We've discussed a lot about the, the top pick, Charlie, where we kind of see them focusing on probably a top-order batter who wants to keep wicket. Yeah, that seems like the obvious hole. We spoke to their analyst, Dan Weston, last year, who is a friend of the podcast, and that's a really good listen, by the way. I'd recommend you go and check that out if you want to hear a little bit more about how this team operates. But last year, they were very keen to bring in an overseas top-order keeper who can bat left-handed, and they got that in Matthew Wade, the very first pick, now, this year, they don't have an overseas pick available at the draft. So you'd think that they're going to target that exact role again in their top pick, but this time it's going to have to be domestic. You would imagine that Ben Duckett is the player who ticks all those boxes. So it's probably going to be him, top of their list. There's a chance he doesn't fall to them, of course, because the Welsh Fire have their RTM option on him. So maybe that's a Tom Curley Cabmore type. But again, he may be RTM'd by the Trent Rocket. So Tom Banton may be the third choice. But then you have the interesting question of, is Tom Banton and worth that much money as current form arguably mm. not and if that is the case I don't know what happens maybe they take someone like Reese Topley who I don't think is particularly needed in this team but might be considered a more valuable pick but my he's, my he's suggestion no. No, no he's not my, 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 
I don't think he is either. And my suggestion here is that they're going to say, what's our bees need? That top order, keep it batter. Um, so we're going to pick the best one available to us at that time. So it's going to be one of Duckett, Kolo Cadmore, or Bandon, I think. I'd be very surprised if it's any other player than those three. Yeah, I I say Reese Topley's not needed, and I agree he's not needed. However, I pick him over Banton. I think I've kind of settled on that now. I, I I get that they have this big gaping need, and it is. I mean, Chris Benjamin didn't have a great year last year. I think he's a really talented player. He might come back. So, but but I get the focus, and I get that your first two choices would be Tom Collicamon and Ben Duckett. And I think that's completely fair. But we've seen enough of Banton the last couple of years to see that at the moment he's not really an answer. And so I think if Reese Topley's there, I would probably add him. And I know that's a ridiculous thing to say, because when you look at the side they already have, they already have Howell, Wokes, Milne, Richardson, all of these seamers already in the side. I, I get that. I, I, I just feel like having someone like Reese Topley as well, even though that creates the most ridiculous um, selection headache in the world, really. I, I just think I'd do it just because I think the value that Reese Topley can add by then giving you an even better seam attack is more than potentially what Tom Banton could give you as much as Tom Banton's a good prospect. And then I would probably think, well, where can I add a keeper down the draft? But there's definitely a debate to be had. I get your perspective on it because they don't need Reese Topley in the slightest. Now I have no idea how they'd fit him into the 11. Obviously they would because he's Reese Topley and he'd replace someone else. But uh, it, yeah, it's it's an interesting one for them. And I think that first overall pick is one we're going to have a lot of debates over. I want to throw another name into the mix here. I don't know if he falls as far, but if he does, David Willey. Yeah. Because he is a left-handed batter who can bat in the middle order. He can hit spin and he can add you more seam. That might not be the worst shout in the world. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 think that's, um, I think that's a good shout. Yeah, I, I, I like that as well. I think... You know, I think the way to look at it is you would want Duckett or TKC. So if they're both there, you test out the right to match. And then I think you probably take the best domestic player available at that point would be my, would be my tactic. Willie, Topley, whoever it is. I just think also that let's remember as well that there's a good to solid chance that every single seamer in the Phoenix falls apart over the next three months. So... <laughs> You know, and, and you probably could, let's be frank here, go into a 100 game with Howell at seven. I, I know I you've got it. too many bowlers at that point, and it feels like you're going way too bowling heavy when you have all those options in the middle order, but it feels like it, feels like it could be a potential option for them, is all I'm saying. And I think, um, I think I'd prefer to have that gun seamer than a guy I'm not completely sure is a plus player in the 100. Well, Benny Howell has batted seven pretty much every game for the Phoenix in the last yeah. two seasons. So that's clearly a balance that they're happy with and it's worked for them. So I assume that the signing of Shadab Khan is a really good plus for them because it means that they can lengthen that batting lineup while also strengthening the bowling at the same time. It doesn't necessarily mean that they won't stick with a balance of Howell at seven given the flexibility they have. I think it's a really good I think it's a really good thing that they've got, the amount of all-rounders they've got in their side. So they do have that draft flexibility to essentially take the best player on the board and it wouldn't really be a huge problem for them if you don't get that keeper batter at the top. Let's talk through if you went with, was their, their side's pretty much ready by the opener. So say you brought Topley in and you moved everyone up a bit. <laughs> so you'd have from seven downwards, Howell, Wokes, Milne, Richards and Topley. So those are... Four really good seamers and whatever the hell Benny Howell is calling himself at the moment. Then Shadab Khan, Gunleggy, 
some match-up offspring from Moen Alley and Dan Malsey and Liam Livingston, you'd have nine bowling options, six of which you'd call front line. I mean, it would be it's absurd. It would be fun. Um, I think it's probably too much, but but then I think that the the argument is is that whilst it may be too much, Topley is a way better T20 cricketer than Banton is. So yeah, while whilst Banton was the pick in our actual first mock that we did, I I would be I'd be very interested in seeing in seeing how they approach that because that that is a realistic situation. Um, it and is. we've got our it we've is. got our next mock draft coming out soon. That's going to come out in the, in a couple of days before the draft, and we'll see where we go with Phoenix. Um, but I, I sneakily think that Phoenix are one of the most interesting sides with that first round pick, um, because yeah. they could go in a number of different directions. And I think if they are faced with a choice between Banton and Topley, I'm really interested to see how they approach that. Um, yeah, it's, it's 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 curious to see if they're going to rate their need over simply picking their best available option. That's going to be the test, I think, in that scenario. Yeah. I think the other thing to remember, of course, is we talked about the double wild card. You've got picks um, throughout this draft. Um, you know, you've got 50k pick, a 40k pick, and two wild card drafts. Surely you can find the keeper to challenge Benjamin there. So you could even take a keeper at 50 or 40k in this scenario and then take another one in the wild card draft and have three keepers fight it out. You could have one of the form keepers in the blast, you know, a good keeper available here, and Benjamin, you just fight. See who's the best. See who gets in the side. So, yeah, I don't think they're going to be. I don't think they need to be forced into that wicketkeeper option, even though that is a very, very clear need for them. Um, and it's interesting, I think, also just on a grand perspective of which teams are going to attack their need and their need only, and which teams are going to think a bit more, a bit more worldly, as it were, and look ahead and beyond their needs and make sure they're not just taking the best wicketkeeper available, rather than a significantly better player who could impact other parts of their side as well. Very interesting debate. Um, I'm talking about other players that might be keen to bring back in. Henry Brooks springs to mind for them. He had a you know, decent on last year with some real flashes. Um, bowls proper quick. Um, I think they'd be keen to bring him back. And, you know, they probably want to maybe bring in an intentful left-hander as well, Charlie, maybe an Alior, a Sol Budden, just someone like that, just to add a bit more you know, depth to their batting lineup. Yeah, I agree. Henry Brooks is a bowler of very high potential. He has maybe struggled to be very consistent. He blows quite hot and cold, but he's a really good strike bowler. I think if you use him in the middle order, uh, he adds you a real point of difference. He's quick, he bangs it in short, and he gets wickets. He can be expensive, but sometimes that skill set is very valuable. So I would be very, very surprised if they don't use it RTM at some point on Henry Brooks, maybe around 50k. If he's in play there, then he's coming back to Phoenix, I reckon. Otherwise, I think Budinger and Orr are both really good charts as well. Budinger, of course, played one game for him last season as a replacement. Mm -hmm. He did get a first baller, but he's clearly a player that fits the Phoenix mould. He's very attacking. He's a lot of boundaries, goes from ball one. I think he's a very good fit for that team, as is Ali Orr. He's a player who I really rate. I think he has a lot of potential. He is a left-hander who hits it a long way. And yes, I know he plays at Sussex, so boundaries there are particularly small. But I saw him play quite a bit last year, and I was really impressed with what I saw. I think his, his hitting, particularly at pace bowling, is really strong. And I think there's every chance he ends up being a pretty interesting compliment to Willis Mead at the top of the order. That could be the way they go, and I think it could work. So would not be at all surprised if he's in the frame for the Phoenix. On the women's side of things, I think it's I, I think it's really interesting the, the different directions they could go. Obviously, they're already keeping Amy Jones, Elise Perry, Izzy Wong, Emily Arlott. So you have a lot of 
seam options there, Charlie, which which I think probably means they're not going to be necessarily straight after a, a quick bowler. So maybe going in for a, a real gun spinner might be an option. That might be an option. I think we're hearing rumblings that Sophie Devine is in line to be RTM back either way, which I guess makes some sense. I don't know if that's what I'd do personally. I think having a gun spinner might be an option there, but it's, I don't know. I, I wonder who forced you. It's, I think why I find this slightly tricky is because with the men's draft, I feel like because we've seen how these teams operate for a couple of years now, I think there's a general understanding of the dynamics of that draft and the kind of players that each team are going to be looking for and the ways that they're approaching this draft. But the women's draft, because it's a brand new concept, we don't necessarily know exactly what kind of strategies these teams are going to be taking to the table. So it's a little bit trickier for us to try and work out exactly what they're thinking, exactly what skill sets and what kind of players they value highly. So making a prediction in that sense is quite tricky beyond the fact that the suggestion is Sophie Devine is there. So it, it, it's a really open-ended question. And I'm, I'm curious. I don't think I'd go Devine, though. I think that's my first point. I think I might be looking to move on from her personally. I, I know she's a very good player, gives you an opening option as well as another useful seam option. But I do wonder if it's time to move away. And I almost think you just target the best player available at yeah. that point. Wait until so you have to wait, I think, a little bit and see who falls to you at that point in the draft because you have so many slots to fill in the open market. I feel like in the women's draft, it's much easier to just pick the best player and then you can work your needs a little bit later. That's how yeah. I'd play it. Yeah, but you, could, you only have eight players here. So I think you've got to go for talent, really. Um, I think that the two players would be on my mind. I don't think other than four there straight away, Harman Precor and Jemima Rodriguez, you know, two really high class um India Indian batters who I think you know can make a difference, you know, in the top four. You pair them with Elise Perry and Amy Jones, and uh, you know, you have a little bit of intent at the top of the order. You have a decent amount of experience, especially internationally there. I think you feel really good that about that, maybe bringing a domestic opener or, you know, maybe overseas opener slightly further down. I think for me, I find that really interesting because you have a pace attack there. If you can build a really good batting lineup to go around it, I like that. So core Rodriguez, all interesting for, for me, I, I would like to see them go after a, a high quality spinner. I like Amanda Jade Wellington there adds a bit mm. of, you know, a bit of batting depth as well. But I personally think, if you have the basis of a really good seam attack, and I think with Wong, Perry, and, and Arla, they do, I think adding a gun leg spinner is just it's just one of the big difference makers at the T20 level. I'd love to see them go after them. So some of the ones available, um, Amanda Jade Wellington, Georgia Wareham, you know, two really good players there. Sarah Glenn's also in this draft, not on the same caliber, but obviously a domestic player. But I think given they're not picking again after round one until round five because of Jones, Perry and Wong, I'd be really keen to go in, get that gun leggy, and then maybe come back for a top order domestic batter. There's plenty of interesting batters kind of at that range that I'd be interested in. Um, if, if, you know, if you go to interesting players um, on the kind of overseas level of things you can find and i'm just going to scroll down some players who are going to be available from rounds five downwards lizelle lee dane van nierkirk chamari atapatu um you know three really interesting players there as well the harris sisters and um, you could also get in um you, you know you could maybe go for uh stefani taylor elise villani 
Chloe Tryon. There, there are plenty of batters lower down. So I, I'd be keen. Yeah, I'd be keen to bring in that gun leggy, who you're probably not going to get later because they're going to be really valid, and then build the batting from there. But that's just me loving leg spin and thinking that would be a real difference maker for them. Yeah, I think that's a really valid approach. I think when it comes to these situations, targeting the most valuable roles or what you deem to be the most valuable roles is the way to go. Like I said earlier, when you have the potential to fill those needs later on on an open market, I feel like chasing the value, chasing those rare skill sets is absolutely the way to go. And I think in the women's game, having that gun leg spinner is the box you want to tick. If you've got that, then you're already in a really good position. So yeah, I agree with you. I think that's a nice nice strategy for this team. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it's difficult for us to know what the women's teams are going to do. And uh, we've never seen a draft before. Uh, we don't know how they're going to value players, how they're going to value experience versus, you know, youth. Don't know many of these things. But I really think that when you have, you know, a small amount of players to bring in and you do have the ability to fill out your squad, go get those high value players. Go get that leggy, at least in my opinion. Uh, let's move on to a question from Random Cricket Stats. Are there any bowling skills slash roles that have a significantly more value in a certain home ground? Now, we've banged on a lot about this. I always bang on about this. But I always believe that the addition of a real difference maker in a power play bowler at Old Trafford is invaluable. You look at the way the runs are scored at Old Trafford, it's very, very difficult when the ball gets old, the field gets spread out, the scoring rates really, really dip. And so you see teams be a lot more aggressive during the power play. There's a reason Phil Salt is up there, obviously, to go hard a little bit early um, to try and score runs in that power play to get ahead of the game. Because, you know, if you go out there and score 50, 60 quickly in the power play, you can kill off a, tar- a, a target, a total. And then obviously if you're behind the game and suddenly the spinners are on and the field's back and it's a bit of a tacky surface and the scoring's difficult, it can get really difficult. And so I've always believed that a gun power play bowler at Old Trafford is crucial. It's just it always kills me. The Lancashire don't always give Luke Wood the new ball in T-Spinning Creek. When they bring him on first or second change, it's infuriating to me. Because if you have that guy who can bowl 10, 15 deliveries in the 100, straight up top, not go for many runs, be, take a couple of wickets, really kill the game early and put the other team behind on a difficult wicket to chase on, for me, that can be super, super valuable, which is which is why I always love the idea of bringing in maybe a Jason Berendorf into the Manchester Originals camp. Just that gum power play bowl, for me, can make all the difference. Yeah, I totally agree. Another one here I want to throw into the mix and I don't know if you're expecting this, given how pace-heavy this team have been, particularly in their men's side over the last couple of seasons. But I feel like having a really tight defensive spinner at the Aegeus Bowl is really valuable. We've seen over the years Liam Dawson playing for Hampshire. He absolutely nails down that role. He can be very, very hard to score boundaries off because... The Aegeus ball has very large square boundaries. And unless you're a particularly adept hitter of spin and square, it's very hard for you to get under that kind of livery and score many fours or sixes. So it's very easy if you have a player of that ability in your side to really drive up the boundary rate for your team. Now, Southern Reef have always been a very pace-heavy side, and that's really worked for them. So clearly it hasn't been something that they've missed particularly. But having a really good spinner who is not going to go for many boundaries on that pitch is really valuable. Um, I don't necessarily know if that's an area that the Southern Brave are looking to fill this season. They've only got one spin option currently with Rehan Ahmed after Jake Lindahl has been released into the draft. 
but I wonder if that's something that they are going to look into because I really do think that is a valuable skill set. There's always a, t- a st- and there's a story that you tell Ed about Fakas and Man bowling the Gia's bowl and being very hard to get away. And as you always say, if Fak can do it, well, who can't? Exactly. And I, I think the the important thing to remember when we consider what teams are going to do in the draft is that some teams will value some bowlers over others because the skill sets they provide. And that's because different grounds offer, you know, different boundary sizes, different pitches. Southern Brave love having Craig Overton. It's because Craig Overton will settle on the length and you've got those big old square boundaries and it it means it's difficult to to get him away in the power play. And it often means that you're having to hit to the long square boundary when he digs it in a little bit shorter. Yeah, that works really well for them. I would not fancy Craig Overton leading my attack at Lords with those very, very tiny square boundaries where Adam Rossington's going to pick him up two or three times. I know they would play in the same squad in this in this instance, but but you know, a player like that could pick him up a couple of times and send him over the stands very, very easily. There are so many different players that would have more value to another franchise than others. Matt Parkinson, another really good example. Originals would love to have him in the side. I think the Brave would love to have him in the side. Welsh Fire, London Spirit, not so sure about those those short boundaries, especially when you're playing you know fifty percent of your games at the specific ground. So I, I think it's not just that certain bowlers work really well on certain ground. It's also that. Teams are going to value bowlers completely differently because of the way, A, they see them in their attack, but B, the the way they're able to adapt and use their skill sets in the best possible way on these very different tracks. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think, is why sometimes you'll see a draft pick and you'll think, oh, why is that player gone there? I don't get it because this player, I think, is better. Or yeah, like in some situations, they might be a better player. That's true. And you might not be incorrect to to value them more than the player who's been drafted. But there's there's often a very clear, valid reason. And that reason typically is that the player that they've gone for complements the ground that they're playing half their games on better than the other player. Mm. Sometimes those horses for courses type selections make a lot of sense. We see this a lot with the Trent Rockets. They have a real thing for going back to players who perform well at Trent Bridge. Luke Fletcher, for example, got drafted last year. Was he the best bowler available to them? Absolutely not. Of course he wasn't. But he was a bowler who was intimately familiar with the dimensions of Trent Bridge and the way that pitch bowls uh, and the way that pitch plays. And because of that, he came straight into the side. It wasn't really easy to play, but it didn't matter because they knew that if he did need to play, they had a bowler who knew exactly how to operate on that track. And that's valuable. Yeah, 100%. And I think when you look at the draft, remember that as well. That you know, you, different dimensions, different grounds, different kind of pitches. Each team is going to be looking for something a little bit different for their bowling attack. And I, I think it's you know, and coming back to the question, there's there's every single ground I see a skill set that I really want in my side. As I say, with the Southern Brave, you've got those long square boundaries. Welsh Fire, you really want somebody who is difficult to hit straight. And um, that's your, your, your tall, quick bowler. Matt, that's maybe a spinner. It's difficult to get under, which is why I always quite like the idea of Roloff and Zemurva going down to, to Cardiff, that kind of competitive spinner that is really difficult to get under. You know, every single franchise, every single pitch, every single ground just has a very different, you know, 
has a very different skill sets required to get the most out of it, I'd say. And so some teams will really fancy one bowler type, others won't, which is what makes this whole thing interesting. And that's that's what you love. Every team has to recruit slightly differently. And there'll be some players that'll be like, teams will have a really high value on, others just don't because they just don't think they'll be able to succeed at their ground. And I think that's 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 really fascinating overall. Let's move on to a question from Jacob, um, who says, it's not necessarily about this draft, but the draft overall. You both rightfully pointed out the value in overseas players and lack of domestic depth in this draft in the Welsh Firepod, which was great. Thank you, Jacob. Um, so alongside the centrally contracted player, should teams get an overseas slot like that? So the names like Stark, Bolt, Bubba, etc get picked up to bring name value to the tournament because if not it seems highly unlikely they'll ever be picked could be like a 125k overseas slot just an idea i've been thinking now i think this is touching on you know a lot of questions we get which is you know why aren't you picking stark why aren't you picking bubba um you know isn't it a shame that the hundred can't attract the big players ultimately it's because you know a few different reasons uh, a is you know, a lot of availability b is value in the draft but it's interesting, Charlie, because clearly the 100 will want to have the big names like Stark and Bolt and Bubba involved. So maybe having this separate part of the draft just for overseas players could be an interesting way of going about it. It could be interesting, yeah. And I feel like if these players were actually available to play a decent chunk of the competition, yeah, I'd be all for this. If you had this outside of the draft mechanism so that you still had your free overseas who were going to be there the whole time and the teams can do whatever they want with them, and then this was just something outside of that. Yeah, fine. I'd be fully on board with that. My one issue with this is the fact that these players, in many cases, probably are not going to play very much. That's the reason they're not being drafted in the main draft in the first place. So I don't really think it fixes that issue particularly because if they could play, then teams would just draft them in the first place because they're good players. So they would not go undrafted if they could actually play. And while I completely take your point about wanting to have the big guns in this competition, it's brilliant for marketing. Of course it is. Of course you want to have those kind of players associated with your competition, naturally. But if they're not playing, it's fundamentally for nothing. And I don't think this necessarily fixes that issue. So really like where you're going with this, Jacob. It's a really nice idea. And in principle, I love it. But... I don't think it necessarily fixes the key issue here, which is the availability. I don't think there's anything we can do about that or the competition can do about that, frankly. I think it's just the nature of scheduling in the last couple of years. The COVID backlog has really crammed up that schedule and it's made it very hard to find too many countries that have a full block of availability for this competition. So great idea, but I don't think it necessarily fixes that issue. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. Two points on my end. A... I think that reduces the open market theoretically, um, which I, I personally don't agree with. Um, that would mean the domestic players would get less of a chance to earn more money. Um, and that 125K being you know selected off for an overseas player, I, I don't particularly love. Um, I'm also slightly concerned about who the icon names would be every year. Um, I mean, I'll just run through them. I mean... I guess this year it'd be Stark, Pollard, Zampa, Shaheen, Bubba, Bolt, Russo, Russell, something like that. I mean, I just, I, I'm not sure about it because 
ultimately, especially if you're picking with the last pick, if there's only a certain amount of players available and these guys have terrible availability and you have to pick one and all the other sides have obviously gone and picked players with good availability, you're kind of screwed. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not such a big fan of the idea. I mean, I get where it's come from and I think it's it's coming from the right place because we do want to see these players playing. But ultimately, I don't think the tournament needs to get clever about this or need to... You know, do some creative things to get this going. These players just need to be available. The icon players need to turn up and play in the hundred, and currently they're not. Now we can debate whatever the reason that is, whether that's availability, whether that's not being enough money, whether it's this or that. The issue is players have to play, and um, I, I think rather than doing anything like this, the hundred needs to work at how to get these players to actually turn up. Otherwise, this is all a little bit pointless and gives unfair advantages to some teams who might get good availability with their icons and others who, because they're picking later in the draft, would just have a random bloke who's not going to turn up. Yeah. I, I, it, look, I, I think I, I think it's an issue that, you know, I don't want to disrespect a player here, but obviously we would all rather have a Mitchell Stark or a Trent Bolt in a competition than an Ashton Turner. Right, no disrespect yeah. to Ashton Turner, but for everybody involved, that is obviously what we want here. But if you're a team, why would you ever pick a player who isn't going to turn up? There's no point, you know. So you just got to pick a player who's going to play that you want to win a game. And I think there is that kind of internal conflict here because the ECB ahead of this draft are absolutely sitting here thinking, "I really hope Barber gets picked. I really want." Shaheen to get picked because those players are going to add so much value marketing-wise to this competition. They are desperately hoping that's the case. But the teams are all sitting there thinking, I'm not going to pick this player because they're not going to play. So the on-pitch value they can offer is very limited. So I'm going to pick a player who is much less marketable but has more chance of winning me a game of cricket because they're actually going to be here. So there is that sense of internal conflict a little bit here between the objectives of the board and the objectives of the teams. And both are completely correct in what they think because they're both benefiting their, their own desires and their own needs. The teams want to win, the board want to make the competition financially successful and as viable as possible. So completely understandable. No one's right or wrong. It's just different interests conflicting. It's a really interesting debate and I'm curious to see how it goes in the future. I'd love for ideally both things to come together with the fix being that these gun overseas players can actually play and then they'll get picked and then the competition will be really really successful because people want to come and watch those world-class players playing so that ticks all the boxes but currently that doesn't look like it's going to be the case so we're going to be stuck in this position here for a while longer it's a shame but i don't see an obvious fix and while i really like jacob's idea i'm not sure it really solves that and i'm going to run through all the players in this draft with a base price for 100k or higher um, and I think pretty much every single one of them has questions. Um, 125k, Mitchell Stark never turns up to franchise tournaments. Karen Pollard, limited available because of the CPL. Marcus Stoinis might be playing white ball for Australia. Same with Adam Zampa. Shakib El Hassan, nice player, not really the T20 performer he was. Shaheen Sharafridi, potentially availability. Baba Razan, potentially availability. DJ Bravo, CPL. Trent Bolt, yeah. Um, he he will have full avail availability, as will Lockie Ferguson. 
They're not the elite of the elite, but they're, they're good players. So that, that's their honor of hair availability. Jai Richardson is injured again. And Riley Rousseau, no real qualms there actually at all. He's great and we should have pretty good availability, but again, might be impacted by the South Africans who are, uh, with Australia, Andre Russell availability, Mitchell Marsh availability, Mohammed Rizwan availability. So, so you go through all of that, and who's actually going to be there for the entirety of the tournament? It's going to be Trent Bolt and Lockie Ferguson. That's probably going to be it. So, that that's the issue you face. It's not just that you, you, we're not drafting these players, and that you think teams should draft these players to get them in. If these players aren't available, and no one's available, then it's just it's not going to work. And I think that is what the hundred need to deal with. And I'm not sure how they deal with it. But that is the predominant issue here, I think. Let's move on to a question from Jacob and Random Cricket Stats, uh, both asking a similar question, basically saying, who do you think the steal of the draft might be? Charlie, head over to you. Who's the steal? I think you could say this for a lot of overseas players, actually. There's going to be a lot of value there. We've spoken about this before on other podcasts we've done. The overseas value is very, very good. There are going to be lots of really quality players available quite low down the draft. So a few names I want to chuck into the mix here. Tristan Stubbs, 40k overseas. Manchester Mm. Originals have that RTM on him and they do have a slot down there. So there's every chance that they're thinking, we're going to get our man back. We can wait for him and RTM him back there. That was how it played out in our mock draft. If that happens again, Manchester will be very happy because they will have got an absolutely gun player who they can keep for many, many years at a very cheap price. Otherwise, there's lots of similar players out there. For example, Dior Brevis, another player of a 40k reserve. Glenn Phillips, another player of a 40k reserve. You know, there's lots of overseas talent to have there. Um, Ed, try, try me with some domestic players because I don't think we're quite as convinced with some of the value there, but I still think there's some gems to be had. Yeah, I think the other thing I'll ask some gems to be had, and I think, you know, we've talked about this in the podcast, um, Fixing the Welsh Fire. Overseas are going to be the value here. This is where you're going to get the... You know, this is where you're going to get the, um, the the really decent, cheap players, whether that's leg spinners, whether that's batters you've mentioned. Some players I'm kind of interested in, um, I'm always interested in a bit of Saif Saib, um, strike over 150 in the blast last year, great fielder. I, I like a bit of that. Give me some uh, give me some Sol Budinger maybe, you know, talented player, Ali Orr, talented player, hasn't maybe proven themselves as of yet. Um, I... I mean, there's some players that, that I'm really quite keen on. I'm 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 a big fan of Dan Douthwaite. Um, if you ignore the bowling, as we've said, I think his hitting is is really really interesting. This is a guy who strikes, you know, really really well. Lots of sixes, boundary percentage around twenty five percent. Can come in and whack the ball. I I really like that kind of that that kind of you know forty k range for someone like him. It is difficult though because. Unless you're finding this gem from out of nowhere, a lot of the players in this 40-50k range, just a lot of players that we like but don't love. So so finding a real steal might be a little bit difficult on the domestic side. Potentially, although there is a name I want to mention here. I think people have slightly forgotten about him because he was injured for the majority of last season, but he had a really good year in 2021, really broke out that year, showed a lot of promise. And I'm surprised he wasn't retained by London Spirit. It's Blake Cullen. Now, yeah. Blake Cullen is a bowler of so much potential. There aren't many bowlers out there of his age who can do what he does. He's quick, he's got a bounce, and he takes wickets. He's not a full product yet. He's not finished, but he's young. That will come in time. There aren't many players out there with that kind of skill set. And I think there's every chance he forced you at 40, 30K. Yeah. I think if you want him, you can get him in this draft. And I think that is a seriously good deal if you can get him in those 40, 30K ranges. 
100%. I like, I like Blake Cullen. I tell you what, give me a bit of Brad Wheel as well. Mm. Not retained by the London Spirit. Give me a bit of Brad Wheel. I think he's a nice player. Um, Henry Brooks mentioned. Um, yeah, there, 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 there are some, I mean, we talk about it's difficult to find seamers, but there are actually some interesting names in, in and around this draft. Um, and I think it's also a case of finding commodities or a commodities is a weird way to describe a player, but, but just, just roll with me here for a moment. It's kind of broken or on the way down commodities players who are trending down, whether that is because of maybe coming off one really bad year or maybe coming off of injury. And I think injury, you know, is, is obviously the issue with Blake Cullen. We saw him really rocket onto the seed. Everyone was talking about him, get some bounce bowls quick. Isn't quite the fully finished product yet, but you know, really excited about him. You know, a player like that who who no one's talking about because he's been away for a year and everyone's kind of lost the buzz is, is really interesting there. So, yeah, I, I like that. And I think, you know, a, a team who can take a punt on a Henry Brooks or a, uh, you know, a Blake Cullen, maybe it's probably a cheaper version of what Ollie Stone could be in this draft. You're, you're, it could go terribly wrong because they could be injured again and not play, but it, it could be a huge payoff. I think that's ultimately you know, what teams can benefit from is taking a bit of a risk. And I think that's kind of how you find the steals in this draft is taking a bit of a risk. It could go wrong. They could be injured again, but take those high upside swings and you can potentially find a steal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's how I would play it too. I think when you're in that 40, 30, 50 K range, if you're drafted all right up to that point and you've got most of your team locked in, I think you've got to take a fly on those high upside players. You know, it might not work out for you, but chances are if it doesn't, that's okay. You've not lost a lot, but you have so much to gain. You you have a potentially world-class operator in your ranks for pretty cheap. So why wouldn't you take that option? I think that's a no-brainer for me. If someone like Cullen comes around at that price and you've got a spot available for a seamer, you take him. Simple for me. Yeah. I I, I think... You know, we'll we'll do a lot of post-draft analysis, but there is going to be, you know, a great pick out there. We just might not know it until the summer. It, it, it might be a player who's completely unproven. It might be a player who's battling injury. It might be anything. It's a calculated risk, which will pay off for some teams and not for others. And I think that's what Blake Cullen could be. Um, and so, so I really like that pick. But yeah, I think the value really is, is going to be the overseas players. But there are some interesting domestic options, and we'll talk a lot about them heading into the draft because there's not a great deal of domestic quality out there. Um, and there's a lot of players, I'd say, who are quite comparable, maybe from 60K downwards, where it could just be an absolute free-for-all who gets picked up. So um, interesting to see what direction franchises go. On the, on the women's side of things, I think, again, it's really, for me, an overseas issue. I look at some of the players who are potentially available on these lower price, base prices, basically. Um, and let me take you through some of the names who are basically on a base bracket of round seven to eight. So that could that could mean they could be selected anywhere in this draft. So basically there's no base price. Shamari Atapatu, Kim Garth, the Harris sisters, Shabnam Ismail, Shika Pandi, Deepti Sharma, Leah Tahuhu, Stefani Taylor, Chloe Tryon, Georgia Wareham. Now, a lot of those players are probably going to go higher, but in terms of, you know, your, your real steals in this draft... I think it's a team waiting until round seven or round eight and picking up some really great players. Some others I didn't even mention, Chikapandi, um, Nonkalelako Malaba. Um, there's, there's some really nice players here. And given there's only a certain amount of overseas that can go, I think this is the kind of range where you can potentially get a real steal for an overseas player. Absolutely. I mean, I look at our mock draft here. Ed, you drafted Kim Garth 
uh, oh, round yeah. seven for Manchester Originals. I picked up all of Prendergast and my Trent Rockets team in round seven as well. Great value to be had there. I think it's a very similar dynamic to the men's team where there's a decent number of very high quality overseas players that you can pick up for not very much money at all just by waiting on them. So I thought there's plenty of stills to be had there if you want a player who maybe isn't the biggest name but can offer you a lot of value in a particular role then or maybe even in a player very high potential high upside who maybe hasn't quite broken through at the highest level yet but you know is going to offer a lot of value in the years to come i think you will gain a lot of value by waiting on them a little bit and finding that value lower down it's absolutely a strategy that i would wholeheartedly recommend now that we i think we're starting to understand the dynamics of the draft a little bit more having been our mock so there's going to be a lot of steals i reckon in the overseas in the overseas department. Yeah. And I'd be really keen again, and I'm a broken record, I realise. Teams need to draft, draft domestic early because there's not that many great domestic players available. We talked a little bit about the fact that some of these kind of really good domestic players who go for us in round four to six are being shadow right to match or whatever you want to call it, shadow retained and not entering the draft and being guaranteed money somewhere, which is really weird scenario that I don't think either of us are very comfortable with, which means there's not a great deal of really exciting domestic players here. So I think your best bet again is to go overseas, lower down the draft. Um, another question from uh, Random Cricket Stats. Who's going to be the first overseas player that gets picked? Um, let's assume that the Welsh Fire go with the domestic player up top because that's a sensible decision. I realise I've just I've just suggested Welsh Fire are going to do something sensible, but let's roll with it. I think it therefore kind of comes down to what Southern Brave want to do. Um, which I, I kind of, I don't know, for, for, for me, it looks like a Riley Rousseau might be the player there. Well, that's what I do. In fact, that is exactly what I did in the mock draft that we did, our first mock draft. I think that'd be a really good pick for them. I think they need a left-hander up there. And for my money, Riley Rousseau was the best available in this draft as an overseas option. However, the question that I think is being asked here is who is the first overseas player that will be picked, not the first overseas player that we would pick. Mm. Uh, and I fear that what will happen is different to what we would do. And I, I think given the noises that we've been hearing about what certain things are going to do, my prediction here, and I want to emphasize this is not what I would do, but my prediction is that the first overseas player that goes will also be to the Southern Brave and it will also be a left-hander but I think it will be Devin Conway and not oh, Riley Rousseau. Yeah, look, I wouldn't do it. I think Devin Conway is a very good anchor, but I don't think that's a, uh, but I don't think that's a role that they need particularly. And I certainly don't think that role is worth 125k in this draft for this competition. He's got but a 50k it, base price. There's, there's no need. No one I else wants Devin Conway. I completely agree, but this is what we're hearing they're going to do. There's a link there between Stephen Fleming. Devon Conway that worked together at CSK. They're, of course, both New Zealanders. I can see it happening. Of course, Conway's already played for the franchise as well in, in the first season in 2021. Didn't do much, Forgot by the way. That. But but that's, yeah, it, it was a very unmemorable stint. He was replaced by Paul Sterling pretty quickly, who came in and played significantly better. Um, but like I say, this isn't what I would do. But these are the noises that we are hearing is that Southern Brave are lining up an early pick for Devon Conway. I think it's stupid. Is, this is the issue, isn't it? We were talking about Jacob's um, overseas, you know, overseas top bracket. It's going to be fenced off 125K, not being the best idea. Jacob, I apologise. I was mistaken. If Devon Conway goes to the second overall pick, I am going right back to your idea. It's a disgrace. <laughs> 
I think Bevan Conway is a decent player, but I think if they pick him there, it's, it's fine. a really silly. Fine. Yeah, but I think in that position, in that place in the draft, poor pick. But I'm predicting it nevertheless. Jesus. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it does make sense. And look, I, I wouldn't mind Devin Conway later on, but it just feels like you could get so much better. I know he's going to get full availability as well, which is obviously great, but is anyone else really going to be after Devin Conway? Could you not get him at 75k? Who else is going to be desperately thinking and thinking, God, you know who we need? Devin Conway. He's fine, but no one's going to be chasing him. I mean, surely he can wait a bit. I don't I don't. Probably. I'm going to throw another name into the mix here. And I think we'd both be happy with this. And this is going to be Tim David. If yeah. Welsh Fire tests the RTM out with number one pick for Tim David and force the Southern Braves to RTM him back with that first pick for them, second pick overall, he end up becoming he would end up becoming the first overseas player in the competition in draft. And I think that would be a much more logical move overall for the yeah. men's draft. Yeah. I think t- Tim David's the one to watch. It's interesting because he's not really going to be drafted he's going to be right to match and it's a very complicated system um but but welsh fire could very easily do that and then of course the southern brave would be sweating as they wondered if the phoenix the spirit or the rockets wanted to snatch devon conway away from them um <laughs> which i don't think any of the teams any of them would be fancying actually this is the funny thing about it of course because the phoenix couldn't take him because they've already got three overseas the trent rockets couldn't take him because they've already got three overseas so given the fact that the brave are one of two teams the other being the welsh fire that has a pick the only team that could steal devon conway from them would be the london spirit do you think they're going to take devon conway um, they need a left-hander, but they've already got Crawley, Rossington at the top of the order, Maxwell, Lawrence, like to bat up there. I'm not really sure they need Devon Conway. I think they need a middle-order player more than a top opener, uh, more than an opener like Conway. And I don't think the keeper is really something they need either. So I feel like they're probably looking more towards, I don't know, potentially a, a, a Lewis deploy type to fill that position maybe. Um I don't necessarily think Conway's their answer. So I, no. I I feel like the Brave have got a pretty free run on Conway if they wanted him and they could wait for See, an much, incredibly much an incredibly free run at Devon Conway. I mean, who else is gonna So just go through the Rockets can't take him. The originals do not need Devon Conway because they've got enough top order batters. Don't think the spirit do. Phoenix can't take him. Overland Invincibles don't pick until 60k. Northern Superchargers aren't going to take Devon Conway, are they? I mean, they've already got they need a Stokes, live at the top of the order. I know they need a keeper, but I'm not. I'm not sure you can. I'm not sure you're going to bring in Conway if you've already got Stokes and Live at the top of the order. I mean, I agree, um, but it's the Superchargers. You never know. It, yeah, it could be. So they're they're a, they're a risk, but uh, you know, I I just I don't know. I don't I don't see it. If you're really desperate, take him at the end of round two, and we could we could do it, but. I'm not desperate on it. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not convinced about that. If, that, if that's what they're going to do, I'm not completely convinced on it. But you know, he's got a good availability, so we'll see. Interesting, but then again, this is the whole dynamic at the top of the draft. We think, uh, you know, domestic players should go. Other teams might have different ideas, like the Southern Brave. I think the other names to look out for probably some of the left arm seamers, maybe. Um, you know, maybe the Spirit or the Fire fall in love with a. Uh, Stark, maybe going for Shaheen, Bolt even. Those are the other names I'll be looking at as well, potentially. 
uh, yeah, I think they're all very viable targets as well. And I, I don't think I could argue too much of any of them, really. I think they would all be completely reasonable. Obviously, with Shaheen, you have the availability issues, but he is absolutely world-class. So I, I would be fine with you drafting him on the basis that he plays a few games this year and comes out next year. Absolutely fine. He would be my preferred choice, obviously. Mitch was Stark, the, you have the, the risk with him that he doesn't actually play, of course, and that's another issue. But yeah, I, I would be fine with those players picked. I think I think given the circumstances, I wouldn't hate that. Not nearly as much as Conway. Maybe he's just lowered the bar for me, so I'm being better about the option of Trent Bolt being the first overall pick. I think he had lowered my bar. And here's a genuine genuine debate for you. Who do you think is the better... T20 bowler, Trent Bolt or Reese Topley? Well, I think Reese Topley at the moment, to be honest with you. I think he, he's I think more, he obviously he's, more. He's, he's, he's more, he's got more dimensions to his bowling. Like he, he can, I think he offers more. And I think he offers more in different. Different phases different of the game. Phases, yeah. Yeah, I feel like Trent Bolt is very good in the power play. Don't really want him bowling much outside of that. With Topley, I'm happy to bowl him two up top, two at the death, and I'm very happy with what he gives me in those phases of the game. I just think you have more flexibility with Topley than you do with Trent Bolt. And as we said before, the dynamics of this draft mean that you can get some good overseas players for a lot cheaper. Domestic players, not so much. So I feel like taking, if you wanted that left arm seamer, you go Topley earlier and then you pick up an overseas lower down. That's how I'd do it. So that is a good point. I think that might put me off those left armors. Tobley's a strike bowler in the middle overs as well. I think he can do that. So, so I'd be interested in that. Here's the more here's, here's the more fun question potentially: Who is going to be the best overseas player to not get selected? That's also from random cricket stats. Just going through this, I, I'm assuming it's going to be an availability issue. And so my so my selection for best T20 cricketer not to be picked would be Shaheen. Mm, yeah, yeah, I can see that because I think the fact that he likely won't play that much of at all will put players off, will put teams off. But he is clearly a world class player. I still think I'd be half tempted to take a flyer on him just because 100%. I don't think it's, it's it's not every day you get a player of that quality falling to you. I think if he does, he'd probably say, all right, fair enough, I can replace him. Because as we've said, there's a lot of decent overseas players out there. They're not Shaheen, but you can replace him with someone half decent who will come in and do a job for you this season. And then next season, you retain Shaheen. You've got him for the whole season next year. At the moment, Pakistan's schedule for next August looks very clear. So you get Shaheen in, he plays for you the whole season. Jobs are good, you saw it. I think that might be a good play. So why I would look to take him, that might be an issue for some teams. That might put them off. So I think Shaheen's a really good shout there. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, maybe a bit of um, bit of Onrik Norhaya, maybe. I mean, I know he's been a bit up and down, but you know what he can do with just the the extreme pace and other availability issue. I think really that the answer to this is is players with poor availability, basically, isn't it? Uh, and really, it's quite difficult to know because they all have similarly poor availability. It's, you know, who are teams going to take a flyer on, basically? Um, and I'd yeah. be interested to see if teams are going to go down the CPL road again, um, because that, that does feel like a, fi- a situation that's not going to fix itself. Um, and obviously, it's great having Andre Russell available for four games, but you know, not having him around the whole tournament does hurt. So, yeah. players like that, I think, is ultimately the answer here. Yeah, I want to throw in another name to the mix uh, for the women's draft here. And this is purely based on what happened in our initial mock draft. 
Now, obviously, we are really new to the women's draft. We're still trying to work out how the dynamics of that work. So that one's quite tricky to predict. But a name that I was surprised went undrafted was Susie Bates. And Susie Bates, really good player, was at the Old Invincibles last year, obviously ended up inadvertently being the source of much controversy when Deneva Nico was being left out of the team in favour of Susie Bates, who then capped in the side. I think there's a good chance she doesn't get picked up. And I think that might be a shock to people. I think she's a really good player. And I would absolutely have a pretty high on my draft list. I do really rate her. But purely based on how we ended up playing it, she went undrafted. And I think that was a surprise to me. Yeah. I, I think, again, it's really difficult to tell, but I do think Susie Bates is obviously a player who's getting a little bit older. I'm not completely convinced of Sophie Devine going in rounds one and two. I know that's apparently what the Phoenix are doing, but I think she's probably on the decline a bit doesn't really bowl as much at the moment. For me, I I, I'm, I think that's the name to watch. And I know that the Phoenix is potentially lining up with an RTM, but that's the name that I would be watching on the women's side of things. Obviously, on the domestic side, you know, there's not a great deal of quality um, on the domestic women's list. We haven't really got into that a great deal, to be honest, but there's not a great amount of quality there. So I'd be really surprised to see, you know, any of the big names go undrafted. Um, or on the domestic side, but the women's overseas side, maybe it's a divine, you know, could could be one. I mean, maybe, I and mean, then maybe, yeah, I think that's the one for me. I think, I think, yeah, I go with go with Sophie Divine there. Um, so it, again, it's interesting. We don't know what they're going to do, but um, there are some there are some big name players who might miss out. Now, a question from Basketball Convert: Will any more Worcestershire players get a gig in the hundred other than Hose and Stanley, for example, Haynes or Dolivera? Um, my instant thought, of course, here, Charlie, and then you know what I'm going to say. Do you, do you reckon Michael Bracewell is going to get picked up? I honestly think he has more chance than any other non-mentioned Worcestershire player yet. I think he's a good player. He's just landed himself an IPL gig with RCB because of Will Jack's injury. He's more or less a like-flight replacement as a top-order hitter who can bowl some pretty useful matchup off-spin. I think he's a decent shout, you know, given the New Zealand availability. Brett Oliveira is a player as well who maybe is an outside shot, but I don't think he's going to be a sure for the draft at all. I think he might be a wild card option potentially, but he didn't exactly tear up trees for the Phoenix last year when he came in as a replacement. I feel like Jack Haynes is the one who I'd be watching if you're looking yeah. for Worcestershire players. He is a player of a lot of potential. Obviously, he was involved with the Invincibles last season, didn't really get much game time. I don't think he played more than one or two games at most. And, didn't bat much. He was down at six or seven, but I was surprised that he didn't get retained. I felt like he was exactly the kind of player I did look to lock in for the future, perhaps in place of one of Briggs or Salter. I thought that might be his retention spot there. I feel like he's a player who adds a lot of value. I don't think there's that many brilliant middle order players available. Certainly our mock draft shows that the genuine middle order options are going for quite a lot of money because of the general scarcity of them available. So I feel like there's a good chance he goes for a a, a relatively tidy sum. But other than him and potentially Bracewell, I'm not sure I'm seeing any obvious candidates from Worcestershire, I'm afraid. I would not be drafting Michael Bracewell. Um, I wouldn't either. But I, I would I'm, I'm, I'm just be. considering the prospect. I, I'm considering the prospect, but but I think first, there's some things people forget about Michael Bracewell. First of all, he's 32 years of age. Second of all, most of his flashes have been in one-day international cricket. And hey, he's played some really good innings there. But he's he's not really a proven commodity with the ball in any format. 
And look, I mean, his T20 international bowling statistics are fantastic. His con rate's currently 5.36. He's taken 21 wickets and averaged a 10.42 in 14 innings. So that's great. But in 117 matches, he's played in T20 cricket. Guess how many games he's bowled in? So he's, 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 he's played 117. How many games do you think he's bowled in out of those? Put me on the spot there. Um, not that many, I would imagine. I'm going to say 30, 40. 32. Uh-huh. 32 games, so in 40 wickets, an average of 14.65, Conrad at 6.52. It's really good. I have no idea why he wasn't bowling more, but the point is he doesn't bowl very often. He's not really, he's, I mean, he's barely, barely bowled. And his, his batting career in season cricket is fine. Average of 30, strike of 133 over a decent period. I just, I'm not completely sure why there's so much buzz over a 32 year old who has played a couple of really nice innings and has broken out a little bit, but has barely bowled. And, and let's be completely frank here. We've watched him bowl a bit in test cricket. He's not a frontline spinner. He's just an average bloke bowling off spin. So I don't really, I don't really get the hype. I'm not sure why he's got an IPL gig, um, but but he might be a player that the teams are looking at. Um, Brett Dolivera, I think probably, as we mentioned earlier, when we're talking about wildcard players, feels like a player who a, a team is going to look at as a competent player they can pick up in the wildcard draft would be the way I'd look at it. Yeah, I agree. And I think that was largely the role he fulfilled for the Phoenix last year. He is a solid role player, gives you a bit with the bat, a bit with the ball. He's nothing exciting, but you know he is a dependable squad option. And I think he is a good example of the kind of player you'll be able to pick up without too much struggle without much hassle in the wildcard draft. So I'd say that's probably where he ends up going if he does at all. And I think that'd be reasonable, but I don't think he's getting drafted, to be honest. Pretty sure it's allowed with a question. Do you expect the proven domestic players, e.g. Tom Moores, or the domestic young talents, e.g. Jamie Smith, to get picked up first? So basically, who's going to go first, proven players or young players? First of all, Jamie Smith isn't getting drafted. Um, he's he's not shown anything in T20 cricket yet. Very talented player. Strike rate in the mid-110s in the blast playing for sorry last year. I know he keeps, but he is not getting drafted um, at this time. He might break out in the blast. We'll see very talented player, but he isn't getting drafted. But I think generally it's kind of difficult, Charlie, I think with the young versus proven players kind of points. We, we touched on it earlier that you might fancy taking a flyer on younger players, but you can get some experienced players in, in the wild card. but really it depends where you are as a franchise. It does. If you are, say, the Birmingham Phoenix, you've got pretty much your entire first choice 11 locked in. So once you've got that first pick out of the way at 125k, you've basically got more or less a, a, a free-for-all to just hoover up a couple of really high upside potential players that you think could be really good for your franchise. So if you're them, you think, well, okay, this guy's good. I think he's going to be a world-class player in the next few years. So I'm going to get him because I don't need anything else. Brilliant. That's, that's fine. You do that. But there are some other teams that I feel like need to fill particular holes quite badly. And I feel like if you're them, then they're probably thinking, well, I need to make sure that the player I'm signing here is going to be able to play and make a difference. And I know that they're going to be able to do that. And I don't have to necessarily wait a couple of years for them to perform at that level. So if you're on those sides, then I feel like you're probably going to err towards the proven domestic players. So in this particular scenario, then maybe, you know, let's let's say hypothetically you're the Trent Rockets and you mm. sign a Seema first, your 125k pick. Now, in this scenario, you need a keeper. So you're thinking Moores or Jamie Smith. 
Yeah. Now, in this scenario, you're thinking Tom Moores, I think, because you need that keeper. It's not a nice to have, it's a need because mm. there isn't another keeper in your squad. So you take Tom Moores because you know that he can perform at the requisite level. Jamie Smith might be able to in a few years' time, but right now, can't depend on that. So you have to go for what you know and not what you think. I think that's the difference. If you're in a good position as a franchise and you've got your squad pretty much filled in, you can take a flyer on the potential player, but if you haven't and you need a player, then you have to go with what you know will work. Mm. Uh, another question. Do you think Aaron Finch will get drafted as still a great player and has no more international commitments? You all set together? I will, yes. No. no. <laughs> absolutely not. Um, love Finchy. Was a great player. Strike great in the Big Bash this year, 120. Love him. Not good enough anymore. He's not getting drafted. And if a team drafts him, that'll be a mistake. Love him, but this is the point in his career where he's playing in the International Legends tournaments, not the franchise tournaments. Um, which player do you think will go for more than we expect in the draft? Um, so, yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about this then, Charlie. Um, some, we, we talked a little bit about, I think, of that one to 5 k players who, you know, people are... Might might see up there maybe your Bantons, your Cola Cab, Morsey, or whatever. But who are some sneaky players that maybe we're not thinking about that might get a bit more money than we think? Well, one thing I think we really found in our mock draft with the men's competition was that there really aren't a great deal of particularly high-quality middle-order batters out there. Now, particularly when I say this, I mean players who aren't necessarily hitters. I'm thinking players who are maybe more touch players, but can still score boundaries. Players who are decent in spin, players who maybe hit more unconventional areas who can hit 360. You know, kind of dynamic middle-order players. There aren't that many of them available because it's a rare skill set and typically teams who have got the players have retained them because obviously, why wouldn't you? It's a rare skill set. So that means if you want that kind of player or if you need that kind of player, then you're probably going to have to pay a bit more than that player's actually worth. So a few players who went for quite a lot of money in our draft Michael Pepper and Sam Hayne. Now, neither of them are really worth 75k, to be honest no. with you. I don't want to clear that up first of all. In, in, in a more open draft, then you know, they're not nearly going for that much money. But in this particular dynamic, I think they have a pretty decent chance of going for a lot of money. Michael Pepper, for example, only really had one breakout season, but he didn't really do much in 100 last year for the superchargers. But for Essex, he was phenomenal last season. He He's a very good hitter of both pace and spin. He hits a lot of unconventional areas. He's a genuine 360 hitter. He is particularly strong against spin, which isn't the easiest thing to find on the English domestic circuit. Uh, he's I saw him quite a lot last year. I'm an Essex fan, and I, I saw him tucking into Sun on the Rhine. He was playing him 360 very nicely around the ground. I saw him not afraid to get down and dab sweep seam bowlers. Um, he is a valuable player, and... I feel like in this market, there's every chance he goes for a relatively reasonable sum. So keep an eye on him, I would say. Yeah. Uh, Henry Brooks is an interesting name who I think might be on the rise during this process. Um, I, 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 I'm I intrigued by him. Ollie Stone as well. I think it's a different issue really with Ollie Stone. He could go very high, but he's always injured. So I don't think you can take him high, but he might go high. Lewis Deploy and Jake Linter, um, also kind of in that 100K range who who, you know, who could go way, way higher than, than you might initially expect. Uh, I'll throw one name out there. I think really this this player could, to be honest with you, go 
absolutely anywhere in this draft. Ian Cobain, experienced player, has done it on the franchise circuit, has that experience. I know he didn't do much last year, but he he he'll be a player that a team just falls in love with. So you know what? He fits our skill set so well. He can do exactly what we need in this specific role. He's really experienced. Just a player to watch who could, because of that experience level, just rise slowly up teams' draft boards and might get taken a bit sooner than you might expect. Potentially. I mean, Cobain doesn't have a county at the moment. He got released by Gloucestershire. And doesn't you need a county. Him. You don't need a county these days. We're all um, specialist franchise <sighs> cricketers' job. I'm not saying he needs one, but I think it's a really interesting case because he doesn't have a county and yet there's every chance he gets drafted for a pretty sizable fee. I also think there's every chance he doesn't get a gig at all. I think he's going to go either high than you think or not at all. I think he's going to be one of those cases. So, yeah, that's a really good shot, actually. I'm curious to see how, how Ian Cobain goes. But either way, I think he's a nice player, a nice man. Game on the podcast, lovely man. Check it out yeah. if you want to listen to it. Really, really interesting insight on the game. But I think he's going to go high or not at all. Uh, Random Cricket Stats ask, who's the best uncapped English player in this draft? Probably Tom Kohler Cadmore, I, I would say. I mean, he's having a phenomenal Pakistan Super League right now. I mean, obviously he struggled a lot last year. Um, he really, really struggled um, for, for the Trent Rockets. Wasn't able to offer a great deal for them. But then you look at what he's been doing in the Pakistan Super League this year. Let me just put, let me just pull up his statistics very briefly. Playing for Peshawar Zolmi, averaging 36, strive 161. Um, he really exploded out of the gates and slowed down a little bit since. But he's 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 been really, really good over there. Um, and so, you know, it's not the most packed field, but I'd, I'd probably suggest it would be him. Yeah, I, I want to mention Tom Abel as well. Uh, yeah. Only only just about uncapped. I think he would have made his debut on the Bangladesh tour were it not for yet Love another God. injury. Uh, I do think that the injury issue does reduce his value here. Whereas <laughs> I, I I think he is a better player than Tom Kohler Cadmore, but I don't think there's much in it. I think they're both very good players to spin, which aren't easy to find no. in these drafts. So I think he's a very valuable player, and I think if injuries weren't an issue, then I'd happily say Tom Abel is your best uncut player available here but of course he is injured so I'm going to have to say Tom Crowley Cadmore because the injury record is too much to ignore unfortunately there's a theme with the players who become available in the draft if you notice this it's because they're all injured all the time <laughs> there's a reason why Ollie Stone is here why Tom Abel is here um, it's because they're always injured um, but yeah I, I, I think it's between those two um, two class players though a uh, question from Kieran who are the players from last season you don't expect to be drafted this season? Um, you know, I think it's a, there are some players who struggled last year. Look at maybe Miles Hammond, or Ross Whiteley, kind of fell off a little bit. I think there are plenty of players like that who, because they struggled last year, probably won't be picked up in the draft, but are very realistic candidates to have a bounce back year and be strong selections in the wildcard potentially. Yeah, it's true. Although I, I feel like this is maybe harder to predict than you'd think because there's a few players who I didn't think would be retained and I thought there was every chance they wouldn't get drafted either. But they've been kept. Alex Davis, for example, I think he had a really questionable season last year, both for the Birmingham Bears in the Blast and for the Southern Brave. I feel like his value looked like it had really diminished considerably. But then he's been retained and he's 
by our projection, is going to end up in their starting lineup again because they don't really have much middle order batting. And I don't see a scenario in which he doesn't start and play most games. So it's always slightly tricky to tell. I, I do feel like there, there are going to be some teams there who will value that franchise experience, who will value the fact that these players have, you know, maybe not done it last year, but in the season before have done it. You know, you look at Ross Whiteley and Miles Hammond, the two players you mentioned there. And yeah, neither of them really ripped up many trees last season. But in 2021, they're both very valuable role players on their side, respectively. They both played relatively unsung but quite important parts of getting both of their sides through to the through to the final of the hundred. So Ross Whiteley won the Southern Brave that final. He did his, his he barrage did. at the end won them that game. Yeah and Miles Hammond despite being a very limited player played some very important innings for the Phoenix in that first season. He was used really effectively as a kind of floating spin hitter with his weird, funky reverse sweeps and whatever the hell he does. No one quite knows, but it worked for them. So there are going to be teams out there who think, you know, these guys are known quantities. They had a poor season last year, but there is every chance that they can rekindle what we found from them in the first season and use them in that role again and they'll bring us value. So I find this question really difficult to answer because of that. Um, in terms of what I would do and what I'm expecting, as, as ever, they're different things. I probably wouldn't draft either of those players back this season, personally, but I completely see a scenario in which they are drafted again by the exact same teams that let them go in the first place. So uh, it's hard for me to answer this one, personally. I agree. It's really difficult to predict. There are going to be some players like that who don't get picked up. But again, look out in the wild card as well. Final question. <laughs> so I saw this pop on my Twitter feed um, earliest day. Was it last night? I can't quite remember. Um, it, it's, a, it's a question from Chris who asks, after Jimmy Anderson has declared that he would like to play in the 100, would he have any role with any side, possibly to bowl 15 out of the first 20 on a swinging wicket? Um, <laughs> so for those who don't know... Um, Jimmy Anderson, obviously a member of the Tailenders podcast um, on the BBC, um, was talking with um, his co-hosts, um, Greg James and the bloke from the Maccabees. I can't I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Felix White. That's Felix. Him. Felix. That's him. Bloke from the Maccabees will do, though. And then they, they were talking about, um, you know, would you know Jimmy have ever fancied to play some IPL? And he said, yeah, I'd have loved to in fair play. Um, and he jokingly, I think, said, um, that uh, he'd love to have a go at the hundred at some point, maybe, and say that he'd, you know, he'd have played every single format of the game. And obviously, he's not in the draft this year. And the the hundred Twitter account said you should enter the twenty twenty four hundred draft. Um, and I, I looked back, and if Jimmy Anderson um, played in the twenty twenty four hundred, and that was his next appearance, it would be a decade after his last twenty twenty game. So it would be. <laughs> An entire decade since he has played a T20 game. That's how long he's been out of this. Charlie, do you remember what his last T20 appearance was? I do. I do. It was finals day. It was finals day for Lancashire. And and I think he went for about 50 from his four overs. So maybe not the most um, happy memories for Jimmy. And look, I, before I get, say anything else, I want to say that obviously he was joking when he said this. He's mm-hmm. not going to play the 100 this season, next season, or ever, because he is Jimmy Anderson and he's 40 and he has one job, which is to play test cricket really, really well for England. So he isn't going to do this. However, let, let's have some fun uh, and imagine that hypothetically 
he is going to enter the 100. So he's put his name into the draft. Now, first, the question is, are any teams going to want to draft him for any reason other than marketing? Are any teams going to find a use for Jimmy Anderson in the draft? Um, no, unfortunately. Um, uh, mainly because I think he has played so little T20 cricket for such a long time. The game has progressed an awful lot since 2014. Um, there's so many new tactics. There's so many new variations and deliveries and general expectations of what a scene bowler can offer you that Jimmy Anderson simply has no recent track record of, of, of being able to demonstrate that he can do. You know, the game has moved on considerably since then. And unfortunately, he just doesn't have the body of work to warrant him being drafted. So while obviously, you know, the ECB would, would be beautiful, the ECB would be very happy if this happened. I don't see any team wanting to take a punt on a player who simply hasn't played T20 in 10 years. So when, when do you think the last time Boulder Yorker was? I'm <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, back when he last played T20 cricket or one day cricket, he wasn't nailing many Yorkers anyway. Just doing the maths quickly, by the way, it would be exactly the same length of time between his T20 debut um, and his last T20 game as to his last T20 game and now. Um, <laughs> Jesus, it's look. I I don't I don't think it's. Um, I, I think it'd be very difficult. I think that the one, you know, I'm not even gonna. I was I was gonna say there might be you know a, a team like a Welsh Fire or a Southern Brave with those long square boundaries. Maybe he can, you know, be a little bit difficult to get away for two or three overs, kind of settle into that length, which is kind of hard to hit him off. And maybe you get away with 10, 15 deliveries. But I just I don't really see it happening, um, to, be, to be honest with you. Um, look, I mean, I, I love Jimmy Anderson. And you know what? It's it, it's a bit of fun. But he, I don't think he's not going to do it because he has been focused on, for the last decade, by the way, nine years he's been focused purely, basically, on being one of the greatest test cricketers of all time. And that's one of the reasons he is one of the greatest test cricketers of all time. Jimmy Anderson is going to go down as one of the top five quick bowlers by the game, probably. Um, and the reason for that is because he's focused so much on his craft. So I don't think he's coming back. What I will do, however, Charlie, is I want to run back to this 2014 finals. Overs. If you remember this, this was the this was the Freddie Flintoff comeback tour. So yes, you remember when Freddie came back and played for Lancashire and tried to like wield them to the final. Um, he he scored twenty off eight and uh, was you know left with Stephen Parry um, at the other end rather than Jimmy Anderson's Warwickshire won by four runs so that was his comeback tour before he went to the Brisbane Heat and things went spectacularly wrong um, the the top order for Warwickshire that day which hit fifty two runs off James Anderson Ian Bell. Varen Chopra, William Porterfield, Ricky Clark batting at four and scoring 27 off 27. Laurie Evans, 53 off 30. Chris Wokes was batting at six. And Atik Javid at seven with Tim Ambrose at eight. Um, phenomenal wow. side there. Phenomenal side. And the top order for Lancashire, Tom Ince, Ashwell Prince, Usman Kawaja at three for some reason. Carl Brown. 55 of 28. He's only 34. Do you know Carl Brown's only 34? You're kidding me. Yeah. Um, Joss Butler at five, Crofty at six, Horton at seven, Clark at eight. Andrew Flintoff. Fucking Andrew Flintoff was batting at nine. (laughs) Why why on earth was he batting behind Paul Horton? Um, (laughs) What on earth is happening here? Um, Anyway... Great times. Uh, those was those are quality blast era 
last two games. But yeah, point is, love Jimmy Anderson. He's not going to do this. Um, um, <laughs> 10 years between T20s would be incredibly funny, so, so we'd love to see it. Um, and I, I tell you what, though, I would really love to see Jimmy have some involvement in the 100, whether that's through some mentorship or just, you know, being kind of a, having a bit more time with the Manchester Originals, maybe taking a coaching role. I think that'd be really fun for the tournament, even if he doesn't actually play any games. There we are. We've answered all of your mailbag questions. Thank you so much for them. At Podcast 100, send us more. We'll get through all of them. Um, there'll be loads of content ahead of the draft in exactly a week from us recording this. Charlie will be sitting in my living room watching as Southern Brave take Devon Conway second overall. I'm not Aww. fully sure what our reaction to that is going to be, but uh, it's going to be a joy. So at Podcast 100, we'll have mock drafts ahead of time. We'll have some pre-draft action. We'll do some post-draft analysis. Everything will be there at Podcast 100 on Twitter. But for now, thank you very much for sticking with us through this mammoth mailbag. We'll speak to you next time.